Well, hello everyone. My name is uh, Mike. Uh, I'm a pastor and uh, I'm uh, working on my demon, doctor of ministry. And as part of my project, I decided to try something a little bit different, which is to, to kind of write out this fairly large paper, about 60 pages or so of, of, of a certain approach that I've kind of put together to, to thinking about theology. And then of putting it out there and trying to get people from very different perspectives, coming at theology from very different angles and to see how they interact with what I've written. So Tyler here has agreed to do this with me. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm gonna keep mixing Taylor with Tyler because I have two friends with each of those names and I can never keep track of who's who, but I wanna try to do my best to keep saying, saying it right. So Taylor here is gonna uh, tell us a little bit about himself and his background, and then uh, I'll let him jump into you know the things that he had to come across that he wanted to mention or talk about my paper. So go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, my name is Taylor. I am a Christian. I uh, was an atheist for most of my life. Uh, okay. became a Christian at the age of 21 um, through a combination of, um, actually, I became, a I became a theist at the age of 21, actually, through, through a combination of philosophy and kind of meditation. Reading Rene Descartes, actually, uh, his argument for God in, in the meditations is when I first started to believe in God. Um, when, at the age of uh, 23, I became a Christian. Uh, met the Lord Jesus Christ, and um, I that was almost a decade ago now. Um, I started off uh, as an evangelical, um, and then I became Catholic, and then I went back to evangelical for a little bit, um, but ultimately uh, came back to the, the Catholic position. Um, recently, I've been teaching religion in a Catholic high school. Um, I've studied in seminaries and at the graduate level in both Protestant and Catholic institutions. Um, and I was uh, excited to read through this paper of Mike's because the topic of sola scriptura and epistemology is something that has been a, a, a hobby of mine, sort of a fascination of mine for the past six months or so. Um, and I have been looking at it from a slightly different angle than Mike has, but it was, you know, right up my alley. So I was, I was happy to, to, to read through this. Awesome. Awesome. All right, so yeah, go ahead and just uh, lay it on me, I guess. <laughs> right, so Mike, um, as I was reading through, um, one of the first things that popped out to me um, was when you categorized the different um, degrees of inspiration uh, that the traditions have, each of the traditions have. Um, and you had on the very far left of your um, scale there. You had the fundamentalists uh, at what 100%, and then you had the atheists at the 0%, and then you had a sola scriptura threshold yeah. um, somewhere between classical Protestant and uh, fundamentalists. You're on. Yep. Hey, are we back? Yeah, we're back. Okay, great. So, uh, cut out there. So, um, the, the, the first thing that jumped out to me as I was reading through was that as a Catholic and as representing people um, of the Catholic tradition, of the Eastern Orthodox tradition, even of the uh, mainstream, mainline Protestant traditions, I think they would have a problem with, uh, with framing the, the inspiration in terms of degrees of inspiration. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. Um... Maybe you could help me with a different way of saying it, because I guess um, there is a difference when you look at all these groups and how they, they think of scripture and how they use scripture in their theology. Uh, so maybe there's a better way to describe the difference. Maybe degrees of inspiration is not the correct terminology, but there is still a difference. I mean, a fundamentalist will not agree with the way the Protestants use um, at least some of them won't, the way the Protestants use the church fathers, because there's, there's a little bit of a reliance on the church fathers there, and they'll definitely not agree with the Catholic position either. So there has to be some way to differentiate. Yeah, in the, um, in the, uh, in the case of the Protestants, that the traditional mainline Protestants, how you said they don't really go with Sola Scriptura, because they also try to interpret the scripture within the context of the early church. 
Um, I think that's both kind of fair, but also I think a Lutheran or an Anglican would want to push back on that a little bit because what they would say is that they do believe that scripture alone is the only infallible source. Um, and, and they would say the early church didn't have a charism of infallibility. And they would say that they only agree with the early church because they think that the early church is, is, is following what the scripture teaches. Yeah. So um, putting it in terms that they would recognize as being accurate about themselves was something I wanted to, you know, uh, discuss. Uh, yeah, it, it's one of the challenges is that depending on who you're talking to, um, they'll describe their own positions differently. But I'm kind of trying to step back and get a big picture view of things. And it's like, no matter whose description of the situation you go with, somebody else will disagree with it. But essentially, like one way, I, I guess one way I tried to describe it in one of the videos, I don't know if you had a chance to look through the videos at all. But if it's like, if you picture the circle and you say the circle is Sola Scriptura, but the church fathers have a smaller circle within this wider circle. And, and essentially like they kind of zoom in on the correct interpretation of what could be many different interpretations if you just do the Bible alone. So the, the church fathers kind of um, become these parameters that kind of guide you into which direction to take the Sola Scriptura principle. Yeah, I, I really like the way that you categorized, um, well, really the, 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 your description of epistemology in terms of what are your sources of authority. I think that's a great way to describe the differences between the traditions, um, especially when you're talking about Catholic and Orthodox versus um, anyone who would hold the Sola Scriptura. Um, because obviously, as a Catholic or, 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 as, or as an Orthodox, you have two authorities yeah. um, you're looking to, uh, whereas in Protestantism, you have one. So I think that was a great way to, to frame it epistemologically. Um, I just um, am concerned that talking about the mainline traditional Protestants in terms of um, in some way rejecting the idea that the scripture is the only thing that's infallible um, or talking about Catholics and Orthodox in terms of, we don't think that the scripture is infallible. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Those were just things that I think would need a little bit more nuance, put yeah. it more in terms of how many, what are your authorities rather than, because we would agree that like as a Catholic, I would agree Scripture, 100% absolute authority. If it's yeah. in scripture, it's true, period. Yeah. But in addition to scripture, I also have the church. Yeah. Yeah, so I think, I don't know. It could be that somebody that looked at this would find a way to articulate it, though that other people say, you know what, I agree with the way you're saying it. But at the same time, I'm kind of worried that because the traditions are so different and people look at it from so many different angles that, no matter how perfectly you articulate the concept, somebody will always have an issue with it. Somebody will always say like, no, this doesn't describe my position, you know? And it's, <laughs> it's a little tough to find the, the right articulation. Like, ha have you ever looked over that book I was quoting uh, quite a bit in the third section? Uh, this guy named Matheson, who, who wrote that book called um, The Shape of Sola Scriptura. So he goes into a lot of detail explaining how the, the traditional Protestant position relies on the regula fide, which is like the, the church father's position as a sort of like an interpretative framework. Um, so he kind of uses something similar to what I've been saying. I don't know if he would agree with my degrees of inspiration picture or not, but he seems to take that route and Alistair McGrath seems to take that route a little bit. But again, like if you have any suggestions about how I could articulate the concepts better, then I'm all for it. Um, because there's definitely differences in, in the sources. And like, if you, if you have theology as a whole, and then you ask, what is it based on? Well, the fundamentalists just say, no, it's a hundred percent scripture. There's not supposed to be anything else. While the Protestants will say, well, it's scripture, but there's also other stuff that makes, creates the basis for the whole of theology. And then Catholics have more things. And, and then if you go further down the spectrum, even even more and more difference 
So anyway, yeah, I, I know I what you're saying, but I don't know how to say it better, really. I think what you're saying would be 100% completely fine, and uh, mainline mainstream Protestants would agree with it if you just did two things differently. Okay. You have to get rid of the degrees of inspiration thing. Okay. Um, everything else you're saying would line up, except when you say they don't really do sola scriptura because the way they define sola scriptura is um, in terms of infallibility. And while they would absolutely agree with what Matheson is saying, that they do use the regular fide, and they do have a, some authority to the early councils, and they do want to interpret it within that framework, they still would, would want to frame and say, but we're not saying those things are infallible. Yeah. And that's what they mean by sola scriptura. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, so somehow I want to... Like, I want to acknowledge the position they take. I'm not saying it's a bad position, and I'm not saying they cannot use the phrase sola scriptura to describe their position, but what I want to differentiate that between a different position where we try to work within the text alone and, and the thing that I'm describing in the other chapter. So somehow I got to find a way to, to acknowledge their stance while outlining a different type of uh, approach to things but anyway go, go ahead what what's it might it might be it might be as simple as just taking a paragraph to just say they would they would say it this way but you know yeah um, so the next the next thing is um <clears throat> um Let's see, I don't know if this is a note or it says, can't determine the truth of Sola Scriptura due to limits of human epistemic faculties. So stop thinking about right and wrong, conclusive proof, but rather about simultaneously viable models and parameters of viability. So yeah, this was a, a, um, a part where I started to really appreciate um, your pragmatism and your um, ironic um, nature. Um, that was one of the strengths, I think, of your, of your paper. And of your whole your whole argument, as it's very pragmatic and reasonable, um, and and kind of tries to be fair um, and, and and humble uh, as well in terms of what you can prove and what you know. So I thought that was one of the strengths. Okay. Um, let me see. The next one was um, so in terms of in terms of um, why Sola Scripture has never been done before, because um, the only ones who really tried to do it um, are the fundamentalists, but the fundamentalists are so divided yeah. that therefore it's, it's not feasible. So I just wanna make sure um, that when you're talking about um, feasibility or viability, your criteria, at least one of your criteria is, does it um, establish unity? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the problem with the way I see it, the problem with the, the fundamentalist approach is that it lacks a methodology. Like essentially, you could boil it down to somebody saying, okay, here's your Bible, go read it. You know, and then a person goes and reads it and because of whatever background they bring to the table, they can read whatever they want into it. And depending on you know what sections they read and where they put their emphasis, essentially there is no methodology. At least the, the Protestant approach has a, a kind of a methodology where it says, yeah, read the scripture, but but go along with, with you know centuries of others that have read it in the past and have followed a certain tradition. And it gives you a little bit of a guide a guide into how to interpret the scripture. Well, the fundamentalist approach just doesn't even try. Essentially, it's just like, oh, I just go by the Bible and that's it. And there's no rhyme or reason. You, you cannot sit there and explain to somebody else why you get the position that, or you, you get to the interpretation that you arrive at, because you're just, you're just telling like, hey, go read your Bible and you'll arrive in the same place. But people don't arrive in the same place. So what do you do then? You know, so anyway, I, I don't know if that explains the, the, the situation a little bit. Yeah. Well, um, yeah, they're definitely provided um, a little more uh, clarity on, on the main problem you have <clears throat> that, or that you're trying to solve um, <clears throat> with, with the fundamentalist approach. Um, my question then would be uh, in this moment, 
um, is the methodology that, that you outline. Um, because you say we first need to start by establishing our metaphysic. Yeah. Um, and then secondly, we need to establish our macro narrative. Um, where then, because if we're going to be basing it on the text alone, where then in the text are you finding um, that that is the methodology we should use? Where am I finding in the text that that's the methodology? Yeah. <laughs> that's the old uh, question of uh, how do you prove Sola Scriptura with Sola Scriptura? Um, yeah, so basically all I'm saying is that there's many different approaches that you could use to their theology. And, and we've, we've had hundreds of them and we can kind of categorize them into groups of several dozen. And here's one other approach that considers the possibility that the Bible was intended to be taken as a standalone, right? And if you're gonna do theology that way, you need to think about what it is that we do when we when we treat things as standalones. Like what is the difference between standalone documents and documents that are not standalone? And essentially we're restricted by the sheer fact that unless certain things are in place, we just can't interpret documents uh, as standalones. Like, you know, I use that, that class lecture analogy, you know, like if, if somebody just gives you a bunch of supplemental readings, but they don't have the, the thing that tied those readings together, the person is just not gonna get it because it's missing some essential components, you know? So it's like the same with, with the, the movie example that I use with the matrix. There, there are certain clues that you have to have to be able to interpret the thing as, as a standalone concept. Uh, if it's part of something bigger, like if it's a, if it's an installment in a, in a series of other similar movies, like let's say if we're watching uh, anything related to the Avengers, like any kind of superhero movie, then you know any single episode or any single installment in that somebody could kind of get the feeling of what's going on because they have this background of like, you know, most of their movies tend to always be this way and there's always some kind of superhero element and there's always this and that, and then they can interpret it. But if it's like a brand new thing that we've never seen before, you need those elements to be present to make sense of it. So all I'm saying is like, like with the scripture, we have all these different possibilities that we've tried. Here's another one. And if we're gonna try to treat it as a standalone, then we gotta treat it the way we treat all standalones because otherwise we just, it doesn't work. Like nobody has found a way to make it work without doing this. I don't know, does that make sense or? Um, yeah, when you say, um, if, if we're going to treat it like a standalone, we have to treat it like we would treat any other standalone. I think that um, that makes sense. My, my question still, though, I think is that um, the critique that you make about um, Protestants not really doing Sola Scriptura because they, they have a... Um, a methodology or a framework, and you wouldn't say a methodology, but you know they—they're not just doing it individual, just the scripture alone. They're saying we want to read it through this lens. I think someone could also say that because you're not just doing scripture, but you're also saying this is the methodology we need to use, and you're not rooting that methodology in the scripture. I think they might be able to kind of make the same argument against you that. You're not really doing scripture alone. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I know what you're saying. And, and I've thought about that too. And really there isn't like a way to, to, dis, to fully dismiss that argument and say, here's, here's the methodology in the scripture to support what I'm saying. But when you compare the models and you look at, you know, if you take, if you take the model I'm presenting and the, the closest to it, which is probably the Protestant model, and you put them side by side, you could say, well, this one is definitely more reliant on scripture because it tries to get all the interpretative elements from within, as opposed to the Protestant model that still uses this lens that could have been tainted by outside elements. You know, the church fathers were affected by their environment, their culture, their presuppositions, as opposed to like just going and trying to get all those pieces from the Bible itself. So maybe instead of calling this the sola scriptura model, I could call this the the, the model that's more Sola Scriptura than the other Sola Scriptura models or something like that. Yeah, I, 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 I think that you, 
I think that your response is, again, one of your strengths here is I think pragmatism and reasonability and uh, humility, um, I think these are, these are some of your strengths. Um, uh, but I do think you would need to um, try to root it in scripture to make your paper, to make your methodology. And I think you probably could root your methodology in scripture, although... Um, I think as a Catholic, I think that there are things in scripture that point towards um, a conciliar epistemology, you know, in the book of Acts, for example, um, when, it, when there comes a disagreement about something, um, they do look to a council for that. Yeah. Um, so I think that's something you would have to wrestle with. Yeah. And the, the thing is like, whichever approach you come from, there's a way to subsume those elements into your approach. So for example, from the Catholic perspective, you could, you could look at the, that and, and, and kind of subsume the stuff I'm saying into your point of view. Well, I could say, yeah, I, you know, I see the point of the council, but the council functions within the wider context of the stuff I'm saying, you know? So they, they're coming at it from the, the scripture, scriptural approach. And then they, once they have this basis of agreement, then they have a council within that basis of of agreement, because even if you do follow a solo scripture approach, like like let's just say uh, people adopted this model that I'm describing, and you know we have several thousand people go along with it, there would probably be quite a bit of consensus, but there's still going to be points of difference, and there, there's still going to have to be discussions, and there's still going to have to be councils where people come to an agreement, but it's agreement from within this context as opposed to having a wider context, uh, because you're working with wider like multiple sources and and extra elements besides scripture. So anyway, the, does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I like... Um, oh, does it need to start recording again or is it still recording? Yeah, it's recording, go ahead. Okay, great. No, I like, I li I like your response. Um, so the next part was where you said, um, was scripture intended to be standalone or supplementary? And then you were already just talking about this right yeah. now. Um, so my thought was, well, um, you know, because you, you talk about the intention of the author. Mm -hmm. Did the author create this, this book yeah. to be standalone or supplementary? And the, the question that rose in my mind or the issue that rose in my, in my mind was that the Bible is actually a collection of books. Yeah, yeah, and, uh, and I'm not sure that we could say that any single book um, was intended to be a standalone. Um, and um, the fact that the Bible as a whole, as a collection, um, was put together through a canonical process, through or through a conciliar process, mm -hmm. um, I think, because you talk about how... Um, you talk about the Bible as a mosaic or as a collage yeah. that paints one picture when you put it all together. But if, if God was intending for that collage to be the standalone, then it seems that God has intended that through a conciliar um, process. So then I, I do think that um, because of that, there you would have to address this argument that Catholics always make. And I actually don't particularly like this argument, but Catholics always make this and they say, how do you know, and you actually do address this at one point, um, but um, I think you'd have to spend a little bit more time on it, yeah. is that how, how do you know that um, the books in the Bible are the right books? Yeah. If you don't, if you're not positing um, some kind of charism of, of infallibility to the church in putting those together, yeah. do you see? Yeah, I, I only have a brief footnote on that in the paper. Uh, in one of the videos, because essentially my, my, I did videos where I took each section of the paper and I kind of did a, a video format for people that don't want to read. I, I, heard your, I heard your response to it in the video. Oh, you did hear it? Yeah. I did. And I thought it, was, I thought it was clever and insightful in terms of a basketball coach yeah. goes around and he just picks the best players. Yeah. Obviously, yeah. he'll have the best team. Yeah. Um, but, um, and, and I guess maybe your, your limited errancy would kind of give you this leeway because maybe one book here or there was not right, but most exactly. of the books are the right books. Exactly. Um, 
so so maybe your response to that is is sufficient um coming from a catholic background and, and having seen that argument uh for tradition based on the canon um i think a lot of people would probably want you to spend more time on that yeah. um let me see the next one is let me see um so when you talk about inerrancy and uh, limited errancy, mm-hmm. you said that the uh, inerrantists um, have degenerated into, or have at least had a tendency to de- degenerate into uh, relativism, subjectivism, and theological chaos. Uh, that phrase comes from Matheson's book. He keeps repeating that argument that- Oh, yeah. okay. That the approach that fundamentalists use just doesn't work because it ends up being this, yeah. Right. So that was one of the things was in terms of if 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 one of our markers of feasibility mm-hmm. um, is in terms of theological unity. Yeah. Um, I don't think that proponents of limited errancy have done a better job of staying together than proponents of inerrancy. Yeah. Um, I, don't, I don't know too many people uh, working with limited errancy that have uh, some kind of cohesive element the way I'm trying to present here. You know, like usually the, the further people move away from, uh, from inerrancy, the more they switch sides into like neo-orthodoxy where they say things like, um, there's a point to scripture, but it's not necessarily the details, you know, like the Bible is pointing to Christ or the Bible is pointing to something else. The Bible is teaching theology, not science or all these things. Uh, and, and then they, they use other elements to kind of bring their theology together, whether it's science, logic, philosophy or something else, something external. Uh, but yeah, you're right. I mean, I don't, I don't see a, a lot of cohesion in in the limited uh, errancy approaches either. Okay, and, and just for the record, I, I, I think I probably do find myself somewhere closer to limited errancy than complete inerrancy, just because of, I mean, there's that passage in Hebrews where he says like, if you, if you fall away and lose your salvation, you can never gain your salvation back. Yeah. And I don't believe that's true. <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I think you can, you can lose your faith and then gain your faith again. So I, I think that your approach to a, a limited errancy is a kind of a reasonable approach. I don't have any problem with that. Yeah, just just to throw in something there because I, I had someone else from the from the theology group comment on my paper in you know, over an email, and the person took a, took an issue with some of this because he said I wasn't really uh, addressing, uh, I wasn't doing justice to the concept of inerrancy based on the the inerrancy document. There's this. Uh, Oh, it's like the Chicago statement. Yeah, the Chicago statement. Uh, but the Chicago statement clearly says that it, it's it's not allowing for errors in scriptures. It's you know it's allowing for different uh, modes of interpretation, different type of inspiration. People getting more light as time goes historically, but they're not errors. Well, I'm saying no. There could be errors because you don't need to have an inerrant document to still get the picture in the end. So that uh, just wanted to throw that out there because um, I think what I'm saying is is fairly different than than the typical inerrancy position that uh, that is is you know fairly popular. Yeah, and, and and where you said in the paper you said that if you're holding to a strict inerrancy, you will have more difficulty reconciling uh, different passages which seem to contradict, different authors which seem to contradict, yeah. things in science and things in the Bible. I think say, stating it that way, as in more difficulty, well, that's just plainly true. If you were to state it more strongly and say, well, then it would be impossible to do that, then I think that might be where you might be. Uh, but I don't think you did that. Well, I, hopefully I didn't. Yeah, I just, I just think it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Right, it is more challenging. Yeah. yeah, and you know, it's the the general consensus to me, like as far as I can see from my reading around different groups within the theology world, there there seems to be a general consensus among the people that don't believe in um, inerrancy, or at least that don't take the fundamentalist approach to scripture, 
they all seem to agree that the fundamentalists have not succeeded in producing a coherent theological method. So I'm not the one saying it. It, it just seems like whether it's Catholics, Orthodox, regular Protestant, mainstream Protestants, they all seem to agree that the fundamentalists have failed in, in giving us that methodology. So I'm just saying, look, you guys go ahead and try if you believe that's the way it works. Here's another way of doing it. And this method is still Sola Scriptura because you don't have to be inerrant to do Sola Scriptura theology. That's just not a, a, a logical necessity of Sola Scriptura. Right, and I, I think that was important to point out. Yeah, I think that was important to point out. So uh, how many more of those little points do you have? Because we're coming up to like 8, eight 10 right now and you have about 20 minutes. Um, I have a few. I'll try to go through them quickly. Okay. Um, I'm not on a time. I'm not on a time limit. Are you on a time limit? No, I'm not. But I just didn't want to make this huge video. And stuff. All right. I'll try to go through them quickly. So um, and I'll try to pick the, the important ones. So um, on the divine command theory, um, where you started, you started to get in a little bit to um, the metaphysic here, um, and you said that the divine command theory led to courtroom understandings of the gospel uh, and morality, but morality is not an eternal set of rules, but an instruction manual for how to thrive in creation. Um, and I wanted to push back a little bit there because um, the courtroom language you know, in Romans chapter yeah. two and three. Yeah, I should know. have mentioned that. It's there. It's definitely there. Right, right. And, and as someone who who does think that that courtroom language of justification, um, guilt, sin, um, you know, uh, substitutionary atonement, uh, that I do think that that's beneficial, at least at times. I would just want to say that um, in natural law theory, you know, the the instruction manual for how to thrive is the other side of the coin. It's like mm -hmm. two sides of one coin. You, you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, then uh, in terms of uh, assurance, um, you had a footnote where you said that your position is basically the Arminian position. Um, but I, I wanted to point out that your position is pretty much the Lutheran, Wesleyan, most Anglicans, pretty much all Pentecostals. They yeah. pretty much share your, your position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I do too. Yeah. Um, the okay. So in terms of sola scriptura, needs a historicist view of prophecy in order for scripture to self-authenticate itself. Now, yeah. this is actually that part of the paper I didn't have the time to do. I uh, I was planning to do something in the appendix and get into a lot more detail. Uh, never got around to it because I'm kind of running out of time. But go ahead and tell me what you think. And I, don't I read through your appendix a little bit. So my my critique was that um, logically speaking, um, and, and even the when it comes to um, when it comes to the the scriptural um, paradigm for how does God authenticate himself? How does, how does the word authenticate itself? Um, yeah, sometimes God is through prophecy. Yeah. You'll know a prophet's a real prophet if what he says comes true. But also Jesus says, you know, my sheep hear my voice. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They follow me. So the, tr the traditional claim that Protestants have always thought was you know a defense of Protestantism um, that the Scripture authenticates itself through the internal witness of the Holy Spirit, which is something you you disagree with. Um, I actually think is true, um, at least strictly logically speaking. God can make it known to someone. Like say you've never you've never heard of the gospel before in your life. You're in jail somewhere. Yeah. You've never heard about Christianity. Someone gives you a Bible. You're sitting there reading it. It's not making sense. And all of a sudden one day the Holy Spirit opens your heart and your mind. Every day when you read that word, it's directly to you. It's a message for you. You know, yeah. as, as sure as you know that you are alive, that that is the word of God. Yeah. And so scripture can authenticate it, itself that way without necessarily needing um, prophecy. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. I, I, I Essentially, like, there's different types of authentication. I think the ultimate authentication of, of, all, of all of this, all the stuff we believe in, comes through that personal experience with God because God is a real person and, and he, he can bypass our 
um, our technical elements where we sit there and philosophize and, and reason through stuff. He, he can go way beyond that and prove himself to us. But within the context of, you know, you're sitting down with somebody and you're trying to rationally set up your, your argument, it seems to me that the Bible kind of takes this route as opposed to some of the other approaches that we usually use. So anyway, but yeah, good, good point. I need, to, I need to elaborate on that more. Yeah, absolutely. Because I do agree with you when you said it wouldn't work in an academic setting. Absolutely. Right. That's not something you could go show someone academically. But as we both, you know, so, yeah, I'll try to move on here to the next one. Um, um, so you said foundational in the foundational epistemology section, you said that humans only have their senses and their reason um, and therefore can only guess about metaphysics. Um, and this sort of goes back to the thing we touched on just a second ago. I don't think that's really a biblical anthropology to say that we only have our senses and our reason and therefore can we guess about metaphysics. You know, Paul says uh, God is clearly seen to everyone. I think there's we have some sort of inbuilt ability to recognize God that's that's more than just guessing based on reason and guessing based on our senses. Yeah. So so here's. I need to find a way to articulate that better. So the, the thing I'm trying to say here is that we need some sort of starting point when we communicate with each other because we all have some kind of epistemology as to how do we connect with the beyond, you know, how do we understand metaphysics, even within the Christian tradition. Like if you look at all the different Christians or all the different people in the world that call themselves Christians, We'll have some kind of epistemology, but it's different, and it's difficult to communicate because we our, our very starting point is different. So what I'm trying to do is say, okay, here's a baseline. It's something that we cannot deny. I mean, I can take you in this concrete room and throw you in there and ask you to tell me where you're at or what's outside or what's on the other side of the wall, and you could guess and you could try to look through, but you're not going to guess because your senses are limited and you only have certain possibilities that you could say, well, it might be this, it might be that or whatever. And, and that's the limit of where we're at. Anything beyond that uh, is, is, if we treat it as a hypothesis, then we could say, okay, this particular group in Christianity starts here, but has this, this epistemic hypothesis, this group has this hypothesis and so on. So this becomes sort of like the starting point in the conversation and we can actually engage people from other religions and, and, and atheists and everybody else, because that's our starting point, then we go from there. So I don't know if, if that makes sense and I don't know if I, I can think of a better way to explain it, but that, I'm trying to do something a little bit different. I'm not saying that's all we have. I'm saying that's just the thing that we can prove that we have to begin with. And then everything else from there, yeah. uh, we're making a case for our position after that. Yeah, yeah. I think it, it sounds like it kind of goes back to the last one where it's like in an academic setting, you couldn't really argue for it. Yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. Because what do you do? I mean, you, you're sitting next to a guy and, and, and he has his thing. He says, you know, the Holy Spirit came and spoke to me and told me X, Y, Z. And you say, well, the Holy Spirit spoke to me and told me something completely different or, or my understanding of the Spirit's voice is this. And then you're kind of stuck. You know, you don't have a way to, to begin the conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you talk about um, naturalism, um, I think you're giving a little bit too much credit to naturalism and, and methodological naturalism um, in terms of the progress of science. Okay. I mean, the the scientific progress has been concomitant with a rise in in naturalism um but i don't think that um that's like necessarily causal the link there mm -hmm. um there are scientists who have seen miracles yeah. um who they still will approach um scientific investigations in what you might consider something like methodological naturalism because they're assuming anything they see, they can break it down, put it under a microscope and they can figure out what's going on naturally. But that doesn't mean that they're um, 
that doesn't mean that they don't think miracles happen. You know, some of these people have seen miracles happen. Um, so I, I wanted to push back a little bit there. Um, and then you, you made a statement that um, naturalism, scientific naturalism could, um, could possibly, that there might be some hypothetical possibility for naturalism to explain how things um, came into be like apart from God. Yeah. I forget your exact use of words, mm -hmm. but I just want to say that, um, you know, science, and I think you're probably going to agree with me here, um, but, but scientists could never explain in scientific terms how something could come from nothing. Even if they had posited some sort of law in the universe that would necessitate that, yeah. you would still ask the question, well, where did that law come from? Sure. Uh, now, how, how much time did you spend as an atheist? Were you fairly young? Were you already pretty philosophically uh, advanced when you became a Christian or became a theist? Um, I spent, well, the first 21 years of my life, I, I did some introduction to philosophy in junior college mm. as an atheist, uh, but nothing advanced. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, there's quite a few highly intelligent atheists out there that don't really have issues with some of these questions because they have different ways of working with them. You know, they have, uh, uh, I mean, S Stephen Hawking had his whole his setup of how the universe began. And then you have uh, Steve Carroll, I believe his name is, who has this multiverse approach. And, and there's many different hypotheses that they have. So they find ways to work around it. And they, they probably won't say necessarily that things came from nothing. Uh, they will just say that there's some kind of something that was always around uh, and then things develop from there in some way. Um, it is a difficult question for them to answer, but evidently it hasn't convinced most of them that there's a God and, and I'm uncomfortable with just dismissing it and saying, well, the only reason they're not agreeing that there's a, there's a need for God is because they're like rejecting God or they're trying to like live a life of sin or you know, sometimes Christians accuse atheists of that, like, oh, you're, you're just biased because you, you, you want to do your own thing and you don't want to believe in God. So that's why you take the position you do. I'm just giving them the benefit of the doubt and saying, hey, these are intelligent people. They're highly educated. They're advancing their fields of study and they believe that there might be a, an answer to the question. And I'm saying, great. So, you know, you're, I'm, I'm acknowledging the fact that your your position is legitimate. It's a viable position, and, and so on. I think the in in strict abstract logic, if we were to consider a hypothetical world in which God did not exist, you would have to be forced. You would you'd be forced into the position of um, things just are. Yeah, have always been this way and eternally, but to explain scientifically how things came into being and when you're using things in the word universe um that's everything and i think the famous quote um or at least infamous maybe infamous quote from hawking in his book was that because a law like gravity exists therefore it was inevitable that something would be yeah um but then the question is and and i've heard a lot of people say, you know, Hawking's a brilliant scientist, but a terrible philosopher, because it seems so obvious to me. The question is, well, Hawking, if the if the if that law is there, then that's something. Yeah. You see. Yeah, and, and basically all they're saying is that those some things, whatever they are, they were just always there. And you know, it, it is what it is. That's that's always been there. That's yeah, and, and I think that's what they would have to say, is it, it just is what it is, yeah. So, I mean, I'm not, like, I don't want to, you know, defend necessarily a position that I personally don't agree with, but at the same time, uh, I, I'm, I'm not even interested in that debate because to me, it's like, hey, I'm just going to allow, allow the possibility that that's a viable option and go from there. Um, and I don't know what else I could say about it really quick. Uh, I know you, you did have something more on a personal thing that you wanted to share. So are you done with your list? Oh, um, so I think you may have already answered this one. Um, it was just um, because I, I was thinking about um, a mark of feasibility 
for any of these paradigms or epistemologies uh, in terms of unity. And I was thinking that um, the, the divisions, first I was gonna say that the divisions among Protestants, I think have been overstated. And if one of the reasons why we're saying that, you know, uh, sola scriptura doesn't work is because of divisions, there's a, there's a popular quote, and you didn't reference this, but that there's 30,000 denominations. Yeah, I, I've read about that stuff too. And I, I disagree with that yeah. entirely. I think there's really only about like 12, give or take, um, that you can name off the top of your head. And um, you could you could group pretty much every Protestant into one of those 12 groups, right? Lutheran, Anglican, Calvinist, Wesleyan, um, Methodist, Baptist, Pentecostal. And that's kind of like it. There might be one or two others, right? Um, but for my question then would be, is one of the goals of your methodology or is one of the markers of viability of your methodology um, that it will produce unity? Um, yeah, that's that's a little tough to say, but I would say, logically speaking, um, if you come to scripture with the correct framework, if such a thing as, like, in other words, if the premises of the source scripture are correct, which is that, God intended this thing to be treated as, to be the main source of theology and to be treated as a standalone. If that's correct, then coming at it with the right framework should produce some level of consensus that you cannot get if you have the wrong framework. So um, if the Protestant approach was incorrect because it superimposed the wrong metaphysics, it superimposed the wrong the macro narrative, the wrong macro narrative on scripture that could explain the fragmentation that happened afterwards. Well, if you come at it with the correct framework, logically it should, it should have some kind of cohesiveness because everybody's reading it through the same story. Like there's this grand story, this, this big picture, and then they come to scripture and they read it from that same lens and it should have some kind of, some level of cohesiveness. Obviously, if we ran the experiment, you know, I don't know what will happen, but People always have their quirks, and some some people will always find some reason to disagree. Uh, so there might still be some level of division, but then there's division everywhere. I mean, you know, there's Catholics and, and the Orthodox, and then there's divisions in the Catholic Church and everywhere else as well. So uh, the goal isn't to have perfect unity. The goal is to at least be at the same level of unity as other other models um, that are aiming for that. So. Anyway, um, yeah, so I don't know, do you, do you have any more on that list or do you wanna get into the main stuff you wanted to talk about? Well- uh, And I uh, could also interrupt uh, the recording here and start a new one if you think it's gonna take a while. No, I, I think we've kind of gone over in our discussion, uh, most of the main stuff. I, I think ultimately um, your, your paradigm and solo scripture generally, there's no strict logical reason why it can't work. Okay. I agree 100%. And I think the paradigm you're putting forth in terms of approaching the Bible first by establishing a metaphysic based on the Bible and then establishing the macro narrative based on the Bible, I actually I think that's a very good paradigm. I think that's actually a Catholic paradigm um, we, that we as Catholics could use and should use. I mean, in the Catholic Church, the priority is always first and foremost philosophy, metaphysics, and then you move in, you know, yeah. when, when a priest enters the seminary to, to become a priest, the first thing he does is two years of philosophy yep. and yep. then he does yep. theology. So I, I like your approach and I like that you're grounding it in scripture. Um, I, I think that although logically it could work, um, I think in terms of securing the kind of unity that you would need to not fall into the pitfalls of, of chaos that the fundamentalists fall into, I do think ultimately you're gonna need some kind of conciliar structure that everyone refers to. And when they have a decision, everyone agrees to. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like I said earlier, uh, it depends on whether the conciliar structure is 
based within the framework or outside the framework, or there's a wider framework besides scripture or not. Uh, but but I agree with you. Like at some point, um, it, it's kind of like a business. You know, if you if you run a business and you want to expand and go and and plant uh, um, extensions of your business in other states and overseas or whatever, you need to have some kind of governmental structure that makes decisions and and so on. But you have to have that uh, that principle of unification and so on that you work with and. Um, whether that's limited to scripture, whether it's a wider framework, uh, it affects the decisions you make. Um, yeah, so uh, so you, you don't you, you don't have the, because I know at the beginning you said that you wanted to talk at length about something of your own personal experience. So you, you don't want to do that anymore. We've covered that already or? I, I don't even remember. I don't <laughs> remember what it was. <laughs> okay, no problem. So any other thoughts or is that pretty much it? That's pretty much it. I, I like this stuff. I actually shared uh, a passage or a, a couple paragraphs from your paper uh, with some of my friends because I like what you wrote about uh, about uh, theistic personalism uh, versus uh, classical theism and uh, the problem of evil and how God is actually waging a real war um, and how he really has emotions and that the, the, those uh, passages that talk about emotions are revealing the heart of God uh, beyond just the incarnation. Uh, I don't know if I agree with you in terms of theistic personalism, but I liked what you wrote. So I shared that. And uh, so, yeah, I, I enjoyed reading your paper and I'm glad I could uh, provide some feedback for you. Hey, that's that's a really great stuff. And thanks a lot for taking the time. Um, uh, so I have your permission to share this, right? I want to share with the group. Um, Absolutely. Some, uh, maybe some of the other people that are going to uh, talk to me later might benefit from this conversation because then they kind of know where to take their their suggestions. Um, anyway, uh, we can talk again if you have anything else in the future, let me know. But uh, I think this is a good stopping point for the recording because people don't like to sit there and listen to extended conversations, you know. Yeah. There's only so much people can put up with. But uh, hey, uh, thanks a lot. I'm going to stop the recording here and then we can close off after that. All right. Good. All right. Thanks, Mike. Mm -hmm.